Howdy, listener, and thanks for tuning into our podcast, The Movie Log, A Journey Through Cinema. My name is Izzy. And my name is David. Each week, one of us will pick a movie that the other has not seen. We will deep dive into our individual takes and historical background of the movie. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at TML A Journey Through Cinema and Twitter at TML A Journey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Movie Log A Journey Through Cinema. Today, we are traveling to 1949 England to discuss the classic black comedy. Kind Hearts and Coronets, directed by Robert Hamer, written by Hamer, and John Dighton, starring Dennis Price, Valerie Hobson, Joan Greenwood, and Alec Guinness. All right, for those people who have not seen the film, the story basically goes like this. Louis Manzini, played by Dennis Price, was cut off from his aristocratic family, the Descoins, when his mother eloped with an Italian opera singer. Raised poor, Louis avenges his mother's burial in a potter's field by plotting to murder every Descoigne, all played by Alec Guinness, that stands between himself and the family title and fortune. When he finds himself torn between his manipulative longtime love, Joan Greenwood, and the priggish widow of one of his victims, Valerie Hobson, his plans go awry. So why did you choose this movie, Dad? Well, I chose this movie for a couple of different reasons. One, I wanted to go in and do some of the classic Ealing comedies from the 40s and 50s, which I thought would be fun for us to kind of explore together. The second thing is the filmmaker really wanted to use language differently in film. And since we both like language and we enjoy plays and how things are written, I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to kind of study how or or examine how somebody goes into a film with the idea of using language to convey a lot of things that he may not be allowed to show on screen at that time. And so I thought it would be fun for us to watch. I also thought, you know, we hadn't done a black and white film in a while. And even though, even though this was shot in 1949 in England, it has a slightly older feel to it. It's a little bit more staged, and I just wanted to go back and see if it held up. This movie was based on a book called Israel Rank, the Autobiography of a Criminal uh, from 1907. I discussed while I was talking to you about this movie prior to uh, recording this podcast that I didn't particularly enjoy the fact that pretty much... 85% 85% of the dialogue in this movie was narration. It wasn't 85% narration. Really? It wasn't It wasn't 85% narration when literally every scene in the first two-thirds of the movie was, I sat in this room and thought about how I was going to murder my family. No, it wasn't. The narration was used a lot of times to introduce a new setting or was used in counterbalance to his actions, i.e. you put he put was putting on a facade and he was going around pretending to be somebody he wasn't, and then we were seeing his own thoughts. But these are he's a he's an unreliable narrator because he's trying to justify why he would kill the people in the family. And so he's being very charming and 
explaining that he's doing it for his poor mom and all that stuff. So it's, it's for me, the narration was more of a counterbalance to his actions and to the actions of what's going on in the film. So you were seeing, quite frankly, it's one of the first examples in film where you have a psychopath really being a protagonist. And he's really he's he's trying to justify why he would go through all the trouble of justify not only why he went through all the trouble but also justify his actions and explain to you that he's really doing this to avenge his mother yes i could i understand what you're saying by that but like i was saying prior to this podcast is that if i wanted to know what was in his inner mind because cinema is such a visual medium that I want to see it visually and if I wanted to know exactly what was going through his mind nine like all the time I would have read the book this film was trying to do something differently it was trying to use narration a lot of times narration is when you see it in films especially around this time is I got on the 914 train I ended up there and da, 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 and then the guy walks to the door and it explains like the transitions to scenes or the guy makes a comment about somebody in the scene. A lot, it's very common in film noir. And this time the dialogue is used to show a, how much of a snob the main character is because you're getting all his viewpoints and all the different people in the family and, and other parts of society. And so he's, so that's also justifying why he's doing his, what he's doing. And, He's also using the, we're seeing the dialogue doesn't match. And it's very important that you follow the dialogue because later on, there's a spot where he he gets grilled by somebody who's asking him a lot of questions in a row. And he thinks he has it all figured out. And then he just answers the questions really quickly and realizes he has trapped himself. So the narration in his head doesn't match the narration of his actions. And when he gets the the lawyer who's grilling him at the time, the barrister, is it obviously his inner self and his outer self aren't in line. Do I find it sometimes a little talky on the narration? Yes. But I also feel like the narration is important to the film. The thing that I kind of got really annoyed when it came to the narration is that every... So the whole point of of this movie is that he is eighth in line to be the Duke and he wants to kill everybody who's ahead of him in his family so that he could become the next Duke. And that's basically the point of the whole movie. And yet in every form of narration, he says, I'm going to kill my family. I'm going to kill my family. I'm going to become the next Duke. I'm going to be the next Duke. And it just after a while, it kind of felt like they were hitting the head, they were hitting the head with a hammer over and over again. That I was kind of like, yes, I get it. You're going to be the next Duke. The difference for me is is how he says it each time. He uses different language. In fact, at one point, he doesn't really have a reason to kill one of the the per, the, the the people in front of him. So he literally says he gave a bad eulogy at the funeral. So therefore, he's on my list now which basically is a psychopath trying to create a reason of why he 
is going to do this. Now, the thing that's on the flip side of this in this film, which I really enjoy, is you see all the characters through his his viewpoint. The family members he's going to kill are just as bad. Some of them are even downright evil, but they're not as smart and they're boorish. So it's almost to the point of, well, I'd rather root for the charming guy, even though he's the one killing them. You know, that's kind of the funny thing about this movie. And I, and I that's where the comedy comes from. And that's why it's a black comedy. It was one of the first films I saw when I was growing up where I was laughing and I'm like, this is a really dark comedy. And that's when it made me start thinking of gradation of comedy, the tones of comedy, how you can make something about a guy murdering his family funny and also a comedy that examines class and social structure and even uh, sex wasn't supposed to be discussed in uh, in films like this. So I found it, I find it very interesting that 1949, here's a director who's using language and euphemisms to describe things. And, he have, and when he's describing these things, he you basically are realizing that, oh, this is what he means. He's saying, uh, I'm going to go sleep with that person. I'm having an affair with that person. Uh, these people are having affairs over here. Uh, these people I'm going to kill, even though he uses nice language about it. And so for me, it's the, the, the language that he's using. Not only is he trying to make himself look better in the memoirs he's writing. So you felt that it, the narration was too heavy. And you said you said 85%. And I, and I, I know it's not 85%, but you feel, felt like it was too heavy. What did you feel? Did you feel it was like oppressive or did you just feel like it didn't add anything to the story? Because for me, it added things to the story. I think some of it added to the story because they had, you know, like especially in the beginning where it's like explaining that my mom met this man, they had they eloped and so her family abandoned her and that kind of backstory and I think some of the jokes are given out through narration, which I found really funny, especially the one with like he gave a poor eulogy, I'm going to murder him. I thought that was also a funny way to deliver the joke. But after a while, when he is talking about the things that are happening on camera in the narration, it kind of got a little bit audiobooky to me because it's like either you're going to show us visually, which you are, or talk talk about it, which you are also are. So it kind of just felt like after a while, it was just like, here's information. And just in case you are too dumb to realize what information we're talking about, here's it in both mediums. I don't think they ever thought that we were too dumb to realize it. I see, I do think sometimes what happens in narration is people get in the narration trap, they start explaining everything. But also, it has to remember this is 1949, and this is new to the, the, the medium. And so there's a reason why in the especially by the by the 60s and 70s narration has pretty much gone away because it's been overused i feel like i feel like there's there's parts of the narration that is explaining things to you that you're seeing like at the beginning like his mom and his dad eloping having the baby all that stuff that sets up trust in the main character so you trust his narration and later on when he's murdering people and explaining to you, oh, this is the worst person ever. He's done all these horrible things. You believe him. 
because you're seeing it through his viewpoint. It's his narration. It's he's, but he is not a reliable um, narrator. So at this point, I feel like those beginning parts and some of those parts towards the end where the trial is going on, where he's telling you exactly what you're seeing, they're using that so you don't lose trust in the character. So you feel like you're rooting for, of all the bad people, you're rooting for the one who's least bad. When in reality, he's the one that's the most bad. It's ironic that he gets caught and put on trial for the one murder he didn't do. But when he starts talking to you about all the things that he did do, and you realize he's putting a good spin on it to try to make himself look good in his memoirs, then it's how good is he really? How good, how well of a, how much of a reliable narrator is he? Not very. I understand what you're saying about the unreliable narrator. And to an extent, we do see that in film, but that in itself is more associated with a literary idea of this unreliable narrator. You know, one of the most famous uh, examples is Nick Calloway from uh, Great Gatsby. I know that one's for certain. And, And there's other unreliable narrators throughout literature but I have seen some of those in movies, but done a little bit, a little bit differently, and in my opinion, a little bit more. Yes, there. Are, this movie is very stagey feeling. This movie doesn't have a whole lot of movement, but I think that was part of the look. They kept on talking about and referring to the fact that the the generate that generation was so steeped in tradition that they were afraid to move forward. So. Things are framed in that sense, and that, and you see most of the movement happening through the the stages of the set, the stages of the costume. Like he's wearing uh, an ill-fitting suit when he is working as a dra- draper for he's the assistant draper at the shop, and then by the time he gets he moves up, his suit fits better, and then he gets to go to the bank, and his suit fits. It's very, still very plain, but it's a very f- well-fitting suit. And by the time the end, he's when he's in the prison cell writing his memoirs, he is wearing a very lush velvet smoking jacket with satin lapels, and he's very obviously of money and means at the, by this time. And so the the movement in the in the characters and stuff like that is more in the sets. How their how their costumes change, how they change over time and their bearing, but everything around them stays pretty still. That is a comment on the way that the upper class is being perceived in this film by him. He keeps referring to this painting of his ancestral home. That's how he views the world as like this painting. So everything is still imperfect. The reason he falls in love and wants to marry the widow of one of his victims isn't because he's super in love with her. It's because he feels she will be the perfect duchess and look good on his arm. You know, in fact, they have very little in common when they're, when they're talking. She's very priggish and she doesn't want people to drink or all this other stuff. And she has a very, she's a very set way of how the world should work but because she's gorgeous and he knows that when he walks down the street with her it's going to give him all the right looks he falls in love with them it doesn't mean he's going to stop seeing his mistress it doesn't mean he's going to stop doing all the other things in his life it 
but it just means that in his view, this world has, the world is snapshots. He's, he's almost like pre Instagram before there was Instagram, like everything he's putting up in front of things in front of himself. So people can see all these perfectly posed pictures. No, I totally under, I totally get that. I see why you feel that this wordy because if you watch a movie nowadays, and even with narration, about seventy five percent of narration had been cut out. I, I do agree with you on that. I don't feel it's overwhelming, but because I also feel they're setting up that from the beginning that tone, and that's the world you're, you're living in. But you're not alone on that because I do know that even when the movie came out, there were critics that felt that it was too long, and that it was a little too wordy. And when they made the American version, they it came out in, I think, 49 in England. It came out the next year in America, and they had cut almost eight minutes off of it. They changed some lines, and they changed the ending a little bit. So, yeah, so the Amer- American version is the only version I had seen up until this. We watched the British version and were shocked by some of the words. Uh, the American version actually changed a lot of some of those phrases uh, and words. So it was less racist, which was interesting for me watching it. I never seen saw that version. Also, in the American version, uh, because of the Hayes Code, they added 10 seconds to the end. Uh, and I haven't seen the, these 10 seconds because I saw the British version. But according to the internet in the area, uh, it said that it's just 10 seconds of him getting arrested because the Hayes Code says that you can't, criminals can't walk free from their crimes. Crimes had had to be punished in the movies. And in the British version, the ending is a little bit more ambiguous. It's implied that he made a major mistake at the end that's going to lead to his downfall. Um, where the Hayes Code has a little bit more, the version I saw has a little, it's it's spelled out more. It's like, yeah, they're coming after him. Maybe because I saw the American version first, and I saw it, and then I watched the British version, and he gives that look at the end. I go, oh, this is where they're going to come for him. You know, maybe that's my brain writing it in there. You and I watch black and white films a lot. How did you like the transfer and the look of this one? I didn't do a lot of, information searching uh, about this movie before we watched it partly due because it's finals week and partly because I didn't really want to be spoiled and I thought while watching it it wasn't a 1949 to 1950 movie I thought it was like even though Alec Guinness is in it and things I thought it was like way later like way earlier the movie would would have been released because it does have this kind of like old movie feel to it and i even 1930s yeah 1930s movie feel to it and i even stated i even stated in one of the scenes the middle of the picture is in focus and the outer rims of the picture are in focus but there's like this circle that was like foggy and i was like dad look at it's so foggy it's so funny and you're like i don't care i'm watching the movie (laughs) Um, but i was like and because things like that were throughout the movie it made it feel much older. Yeah, it felt it did have the feel of a 30s film when they were first getting to use getting used to using sound equipment and they started locking things down again because by the time by the end of the the silent era they were really doing a really great job moving cameras around. People in uh all over the world were 
because you didn't have to worry about sound equipment, you could move cameras around. You were more that's where crane shots were being used more. Uh, you were putting cameras in, in in strange places with strange angles to get really dynamic filming. You had, and then when sound came, every little thing, of course, because the because the microphones weren't very uh, dynamic and they just picked up everything. Uh, they had to like lock things down. They had to come up with blimps and things like that to quiet the equipment. So things went back to being stagey again and they didn't move around a lot and things were very careful. And then there was action sequences and, or movement sequences and talking sequences. They were kind of broken up. People weren't talking as they were moving. And this has that, this has that feel, although they, they'll move around inside the scene and talk. It still was a lot more stay, um, static than you would be used to from a movie in 1949. A good example would be like 1949 film the from a director we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Double Indemnity from Billy Wilder is a much more active and the, the camera work is much more dynamic than uh, this film. But like I said, I also felt like they locked, they were using it as his viewpoint to the world that everything is very static. You don't break into the upper class. It's a very static society. And so the camera work and the, the, the way that they structured the film was also static. Well, the, to me, it also, not just with the lack of movement, I don't know how to explain this in a very concise way, but 1920 black and white, 1930 black and white and 1940 black and white all have different looks to them. And this one had a 1930 black and white look to it instead of that, that very smooth, very soft 1940s look. Yeah. The film had gotten physically faster by that time. And so that means they could use uh, less light to get better images. They could use more light to get really nice, crisp images so the film was much much faster by then, and the technology was really was much better by the forties. Plus, you have to understand they we we went through uh, at that point World War Two, and one of the things that World War Two did is it led to a lot of experimenting with sound and doing things on the fly because they they were pumping out movies, but also documentaries and footage from different spots across the the, the, the war zone uh, where, where people were fighting. And so uh, by this time, by 1949, the, a lot of the microphones were better. A lot of the equipment was smaller because it, they had done a lot of work on cameras and stuff to, to go around and do different things. So that's another reason why 1940 late forties, early fifties, black and white films have that certain look, that film noir look where everything is very crisp and, uh, the shadows are, are, are deep and because, and, but also there's a lot of movement in the, the film because the cameras are lighter they're moving around The film is faster. And so when you go and watch one of this film, yes, yeah, it's very, it's very staged, but I think that's part of the, the point of the film too. Cause I've seen other e- evening films not too long after this and, or one that's, Shot right uh, before that's called Passport to Passage to Pimlico. Passport to Pimlico. Uh, sorry, uh, Passage to uh, Passport to Pimlico, and that's it has a lot more of a a flowing and 
what you would consider a 1949 type of camera, very active, people running through the streets, uh, things happening, you know, just the way it's staged. So I think this is a very specific look for this film. So this is a Ealing Studio film, and they have a big influence on British cinema as well as world cinema. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, Ealing Studios is the oldest continuous film studio in the world. It started in 1902, so there's been something shot at Ealing Studio since 1902. So we look at that as, what, uh, under 19 years? They picked Ealing outside of London because at that time, studios and and filming uh, was done in natural light, and it had Ealing had less pollution and had really good sun. So they were able to get really good lighting and be able to do their filming. Are they still around today? I don't think I've seen an Ealing Studio title card in a while. No. So, oh, well, yes and no. Yes. So it started off, I forget what the name of the original studio was. And then in 1929, it was acquired by Basil Dean, who founded Associated Talking Pictures Limited. And that was, it, it ran that way until 1938 when Michael Balkan came on into the studio and started running the studio. He's the one that changed it to Ealing Studios because uh, Dean had left and he was rebranding it and moving it. Uh, and that's when he started releasing films under the actual name Ealing Studios. And then they ran that way from all the way till 55. And then the BBC acquired it. MGM uh, did co-productions with Ealing Studios through some of the 50s. And then uh, BBC, of course, did a lot of their films and television shows there until 1995. And then at that point, it went back to becoming a studio. And you had the studio decided to do release more films and you had films like lucky break important to being earnest Shaun of the dead uh filmed at Ealing studios and then of course tv shows like the downstairs part of downtown abbey was filmed there and they started putting out films of their own there's also the imaginarium is stationed there that's the company that uh andy circus and jonathan cavendish started that's the motion cap there motion capture company that they just, they created. So because they created that motion capture company and it's based out there that this, the studio actually has a lot of stuff going on now. I don't know if it's still doing like full on productions or if it's more like parts of productions are being done there, but it's still, but it's still part of the British entertainment DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then just, and I mean, you still have, you have some, you have some American movies that will come over and do like scenes and stuff like that there. It's so still going, it's so strong. And you can, if you guys have enough money, you can go shoot a film there if you want to. It has a really cool history. It's definitely like more of a campus type atmosphere for filming. Uh, and a lot of people say that. That it's really kind of close knit and really kind of cool. So, would you say that Ealing's 
that Ealing Studios' golden age was like right after World War II, or well, yes, what they're famous for happened right after World War II. They've done a lot, like they did a lot of films, uh, a lot of serious films, a lot of dramas, tear jerkers. They did documentaries. They still do a lot of documentaries, and but they got known for these comedies right after World War II. There's a there's a there's a few of them. They are like, you know, the Lady Killers, the Passport to Pimlico, which I already mentioned, this one, Kind Hearts and Cornets, the Lavender the Lavender Hill Mob, and the man in the white suit. And and so the, these films are kind of what became famous and they became such a part of film history and, and British film history that Eileen became known for them. Even though if you do that, then the numbers did only about a third of their films were were comedies. But most of their comedies were also kind of like these these comedies like this one, which are satires of society or they're black comedies or they're, they're questioning what's going on. They're so, examining British society almost. I knew Ealing from comedies. And the more that you do research, that's like only one of the things that they did. Well, also, for all you Star Wars fans out there, these were pretty much also the golden age of Alec Guinness as well, as he, out of the four or five movies that you posted, he's in, he's a main character in three of them. The first one he did for them was this one, Kind Hearts and Coronets, where he played nine characters. And then he went on and did... The Lavender Hill Mob and the Man in the White Suit. Uh, and I think he did. Uh, I think the Lady Killers came after that. So, as Dad has mentioned, Alec Guinness played nine parts in this movie. He was originally offered four parts, and he loved the script so much he was like, "Why not eight parts?" And one of the parts that he plays, quote unquote, is uh, a portrait of an old duke. Um, so he that's part nine. Yeah, but he also, he's also in one of the flashbacks with the old Duke. I'm going to see if I can remember all of these. He plays the current sitting Duke, the Admiral, the Suffragette, a priest. It's four of them. Uh, he plays Henry DeCoins, which is the husband of the, of the widow he um, falls in love with. He... There's also an, a couple of other ones, but nope, you missed them. You didn't yeah. get them all. So well, I don't so, remember their names. So the, there's there's the sitting duke, Ethelred, the eighth duke of Chalfront. He was Ethelred's four younger brothers: the Reverend Lord Henry, General Lord Rufus, Admiral Lord Horatio, Lord Ascot, Lord Ascoyne the banker. He then plays Lady Agatha Descoyne, Ethelred's sister. And then he plays Ethelred's nephews, young Escoyne and Henry, the, and the seventh Duke, Ethelred's father, in a brief flashback. So that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think I got them all. I think you did get them all. I, after a while, it's like naming the states, you know? I <laughs> know, yeah, it's like state capitals. Uh,. And so, but then, like the the main character Dennis Price plays Luis Mazzini, and then he also plays his father in the flashbacks. It, it's become a tradition now when they do different versions of this film, 
uh, they've done two radio plays, and they did a musical where the actor who plays that part of the family plays all the parts because of what Alec Guinness did here. So it's like similar to like Hairspray and Divine. The mom, the mom is always played in drag. Or yeah, and another thing that's very similar is it popped in my head when we were watching it is Peter Pan, where the father plays Captain Hook a lot. Mm, yeah, because right. even though it doesn't say that anywhere in the thing, but that same actor seems to play Peter Pan and the father. It's just a, a common thing. It's laying on the metaphors. <laughs> I thought it was funny that um, Alec Guinness is quoted as saying one of his nightmares when filming this movie was that he would be dressed up as somebody, as one of the other, as one of the decoins, but acting as the other one. So, like he said, it would be so sad if Lady Agatha was talking with the Admiral's voice. And I just thought that was such a fun insight to how. Alec Guinness is such a perfectionist and focused actor. So some of the things that that he was afraid of actually did come true a little bit because he was doesn't like to swim. He just doesn't like water. And he there was a scene where the admiral was drowning, and they had them kind of like locked in on this thing on the stay on a on the bridge of the ship, so that the bridge would get lowered into the water, and the last thing you'd see is the hat floating away. And the crew got the shot, the last shot. And they forgot about him, started cleaning up, and forgot. And thankfully, they remembered and went and got him before he drowned, or we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had Obi Wan. Um, and I think another thing too is that that he was also afraid of was just he didn't like heights, so he didn't do the balloon scene with the suffragette, but almost got taken out by the balloon as it, be, it was being dragged across. And there was just the, some of the stories that he had were basically, because he's in every scene in his film, as somebody else, it made him, he had a couple accidents. He only had two accidents, and it seems low, but since it happened twice on two different, on, on the same show, on the same show, it seems a, a little cursed. So the director, um, Robert Hamer, really wanted to, he did some changes from the book because the book is a little bit darker. The book is the character. The main character is half Jewish. And he felt that if he kept, he changed the character from half Jewish, the main character from half Jewish to half Italian. Cause he wanted to, he wanted the main character when he's scheming and trying to, you know, man- manipulate people. He didn't want people to see it as being anti-Semitic th- actions or people to start reading into things that he was doing. He wanted them to be free from that. So, which I think is a kind of a smart choice, but also he also wanted also not to go as dark because in the book, apparently there's a kid that gets killed and a couple other things that happen that are on the darker side. And he knew that to make a lighter comedy about murder, you have to keep it aimed at the adults. He did tweak that in the screenplay because he didn't want to, he didn't want people to get, to get sidetracked with either darker themes or themes about anti-Semitism. No, that's fair. But I also think it's quite funny that in the British version, he, he trades anti-Semitism for, cold-hearted racism when this when this movie takes place is 
um, Edwardian England, which means it's between 1901 to 1910. So it's right after Queen Victoria. It's a very specific time. They're at the height of the British Empire. And so their viewpoint on the world is pretty much a supremacist viewpoint. So that was the one thing that kind of surprised me about this film, having only seen the American version, is that they use, in the British version, the rhyme, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, with the original wording, which has very racist words in it and connotations. And in the American version, they switched it to eeny, meeny, miny, moe with the word sailor, which is the only version I had seen up until this this viewing. And so I was really taken aback. It happens about three quarters through into the movie. And it, it kind of took me quite frankly out of the movie. And I had a really hard time reconciling the film with the film that I remembered growing up, knowing that this version was out there. That's the hard part of when you go back and re watch cinema, especially in the twenties to pretty much early 90s everything usually comedy or sayings or just point of views don't really translate well in the 2020 universe yeah i i guess the thing is though that's kind of what took me out of it is that there is this version and that was released in america that doesn't have that language doesn't even have that connotation in it if you understand where the eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing comes from, you under, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And that's the thing that kind of just surprised me is that I didn't even know that that was the British version. And as we're streaming this, I was surprised that, A, there wasn't a warning. There wasn't any mention at all that this was in the film. And that you when I was kind of like going, wow, did I really remember this movie incorrectly? And then I found out that, no, I watched the British cut, and I had, and when I was growing up, had watched the American cut. So it's a, it's a little different thing. and it, it, So that leads to the, the next question you're about to ask me, which is? Would you recommend this movie? That's a tough one, because there's a lot I really like about this film. There's a lot of things that... I like about Alec Guinness's roles. There's a lot of things I like about the sly humor and how dark the comedy is. If I was just watching the American cut and I knew that the American cut was out there, I would say, yeah, it's a, it's a fun movie to watch. And the American cut is also quicker. The pacing is a little bit tighter, but also it doesn't have the, the eeny, meeny, miny, mo scene. And you don't have though that word being used. And, but then again, I'd go, would I go back and watch the American cut now, knowing that that was the original intent of that scene? I don't know. So my thing is, if you really are a completist and you want to watch the history of Ealing and their comedies, and you want to see some great performances by Alec Guinness and Dennis Price, then I would watch the American cut. And... But if, there, if you don't want to watch these films, there's definitely other films like The Lady Killers and The Lavender Hill Mob and The Man in 
the white suit that I would recommend over this one. So would you recommend it? I'm going to be a little bit harsh right now, and I don't mean to be. I just, my life did not change because I watched this movie. And I don't know if it's just because when I was, when I sat down to watch it, watch it I had been talked to all day via video because of lectures and things like that. And then I watched this movie and I'm getting talked to via video. I just, I wouldn't. My life didn't change because of it. I thought some of it was really funny, and there was particular scenes that I think a lot of people should watch. But the whole movie in general, yeah. But I am interested in seeing some other Ealing Studio films. While we were doing some research for this podcast, we watched a short documentary, and I got to see some clips of um, the man in the white suit, and I'm actually quite intrigued by that. So I think I am going to go on my own time and watch that movie yeah that makes sense i just to me this movie it's there's it's the same reason that i didn't like fences by denzel washington it was brilliantly acted costumes were fantastic the this but the thing is it's stagnant and it feels like a play you just it feels like you just put a camera up and filmed the play well that's where you and i disagree no, and that's fair. Well, I hope you enjoyed our podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We post new episodes every Tuesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Or follow us on Instagram at TML A Journey Through Cinema or Twitter at TML A Journey. We also have a Facebook page under The Movie Log. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will be taking a trip into the Disney sphere. <laughs>